Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Linnae Holdings out in lovely San Diego, and our producer, Dan Humiston. Nice to be back after uh, some craziness the past few weeks, being at the MJ Biz, having slots of fun. Uh, we're going to do a little focus on the Grateful Dead today, and we're looking at a show uh, from December 9th, 1990 at Compton Terrace Amphitheater out in Tempe, Arizona. My first time out there on the 8th and the 9th for a, a two-show run. Uh, this is one of my favorite shows that I saw that year and maybe one of my favorite shows ever. So, uh, Dan, if you're ready, let's dive right in. When I was starting to see him, that was you know considered one of the newer tunes. But by the time I had been seeing him for a while, it had definitely worked its way in as as one of the regulars. Uh, but that song and Picasso Moon were two Bobby tunes that I always loved when they would open a show with because they just come out on fire, and uh, and Bobby screaming and yelling. What's your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think it's got one of the greatest opening lines of any song in rock and roll, as tongue in cheek as it gets. And I, th I think that song always made me chuckle. Yeah, I loved it. I also liked it because, you know, if it's going to come out on fire like that, the chances of getting a sugary afterwards went up exponentially, knowing that it was a hell opener. So I, I always liked the combo of, of bucket sugary. Yep, I agree with that. I think that that is true. Although in this case, it was actually a uh, hell in a bucket Bertha, which um, from my perspective is great because Bertha has always been one of my favorite tunes. And, uh, you know, if Jerry wants to defer to Bobby for the opening and then sneak in the Bertha afterwards, I got no problem with that. Nope, nor do I. And uh, yeah, to your point, man, Compton Terrace, what a great venue. I mean, for people that haven't been there before, it's just outside of Phoenix in Tempe, Arizona. You know, it's, it's a venue that's just different tiers of, of lawn, essentially. But instead of having a big sloping hill, they are literally terraces, you know. It's, um, and, and they're wide enough to fit two or three people deep and dance on each you know, sort of level. There isn't a bad seat in that house. I don't think that amphitheater holds more than about 18,000, 17,000 people. It's a terrific place to see a show. So if you've been there, you know, it's, it's one of the great outdoor venues, I think, uh, in the Western United States. Definitely. You know, Hell in a Bucket, it's just a fun tune. And I may have mentioned to you, you know, just to show out of touch that the mainstream media always was with the Grateful Dead. Uh, you know, when I was first starting to see them in the early 80s and all through the 1980s, all I wanted to be able to do was read articles about them, right? I wanted to see reviews of their concerts. I wanted, But people, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of articles about the Grateful Dead in mainstream media at that time. And so you would have to wait for them to come to town and wait for a review. And the reviews were always painful. 
because they were always clearly written by somebody who didn't have any Grateful Dead background or knowledge. And eventually, the Chicago Tribune got Greg Codd as a, a musical critic, and he he was able to do the job. But early on, they they had a, a revolving cast of characters. And after we saw him in Chicago one year, it must have been 85 or 86, because it was before In the Dark came out, but Helena Bucket was being played. And in the Chicago Tribune the next day, the review raved about the, the Grateful Dead's new wonderful song, Police on a Joyride. And I got to tell you, I read that, and I just cracked up. I... It, it was the epitome of someone going to a show, thinking they heard what they heard and going home and being willing to write about it uh, and put their name at the top of the article. So I can't say whether that journalist ever survived or not, but uh, uh, was not back to cover any more Grateful Dead shows after that. So, uh, you know, if you, if you want to cover the Grateful Dead, make sure you know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> well, I think it's a new song. You never have, you know, exactly have uh, any idea what they're saying. And I, I, I've heard a lot of songs where people have gotten the lyrics wrong, um, oftentimes to my amusement. Uh, the classic one for me was uh, the song Pigeons by Widespread Panic, where the line is, um, uh, pigeons on the roof. And the person next to me thought it was throwing midgets off the roof, <laughs> <laughs> which, which has now caused us to sing that line for the last 10 years. Every time uh, pigeons comes on, like, they played midgets last night? I don't know what we did before we had the internet. You know, you could look up the lyrics. You know, we all had lyrics to Grateful Dead tunes that we were sure were correct, but you know, it wasn't even close. For a, for a school project one year, um, we, were, we, were, we decided to do a, a thing on throwing stones, and uh, – we sat and listened to it for hours over and over and over again, trying to make sure we got each one of the lyrics and we still would be two or three words. We just couldn't get, we'd go searching around on campus for the guys who we thought were like, you know, the ultimate deadheads and, you know, could just automatically give us the knowledge. Now you can just go online. Not that that, not that the lyrics pages always have it right, but you know, at least it gives you something plausible to work with. Yeah, that's true. And I gotta tell you, please don't enjoy ride. Uh, and you know, when I think about how Bobby kind of slurs it, I can see that. I can definitely see that. Uh, you know, oh yeah, it makes sense. It, it, I mean, isn't that isn't that like moment dance? Yeah, moment dance is, is specifically done to uh, to to not you know be sure what they're saying there, right? Whether it's moment ends or moment dance, and Fish does a, a lot of a lot of tunes where you're specifically trying to figure out what the lyric is, and it blends back and forth between uh, between things that could be without any definitive answer, right? Right. It, so, yeah, you know, it's uh, either way. I just I, we all got such a kick out of it because, of course, at the time, we just all assumed that even back then that we knew more about the Grateful Dead than anybody. And the fact that, you know, somebody would print something in the newspaper with such a grievous error just was uh, was too funny for us. So um, uh, but, yeah, Helena Bucket, great song, uh, could get overplayed from time to time. But uh, in, in, in general, always fun to listen to and uh, play around with. Um so what's going on with you, Rob? How you doing? Yeah, good. You know, it's a uh, fun, fun getting towards the end of the year or in the thick of the holiday season now, you know, post Thanksgiving, pre, uh, pre Christmas and, uh, and all other holidays. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a good time. Got a lot of, a lot of family stuff planned and unfortunately not, not any music in my future, but I know that's never the case for you, Larry. I'm guessing you've got some good shows coming up and I'm guessing you've probably seen music in the last couple of weeks, whereas, I've uh, I, I've been left to live vicariously through your outings. Uh, the difference between having small children at home and having your kids away at school and out of the house, you get to go do these things again. I, I there's no doubt about it. It's it's like a whole new lease on life. You know, live music basically wherever and whenever. Although you'll all be listening to this on uh, Monday, December fifth, on the second, third, and fourth. Uh, so for me coming up, I'm going to be seeing J Rad uh, at the Chicago Theater, and excuse me, not the Chicago Theater, the Riviera Nightclub. 
or the Riviera Theater, whatever they're calling it these days, up on Lawrence and Broadway. And uh, very, very excited to see Jay Rad. I hadn't seen him in a while. We were supposed to see him this summer. They got rained out, and so now they're rescheduled. And uh, this will be a nice little, you know, early December uh, uh, music experience for us here. It's always nice to be able to go home and sleep in your own bed, and uh, looking forward to that. Well, I actually think that um, is a pretty good reason to do a J-Rad show here one of these days. You know, we're, we always do, you know, Grateful Dead, purely Grateful Dead. But I think that covering a J-Rad show or, you know, even covering a, a further or, you know, one of the other uh, incarnations of, of the Grateful Dead, it may be appropriate in time to start looking at some other things outside of the Grateful Dead. Because J-Rad, you know, or, or DSO just do such a nice job with, um, with their renditions. And there's times I wonder whether, like, covers that J-Rad have done have been as good, if not better than certain things that the Grateful Dead have done. It's just a, a new way of approaching it. You know, I, as you know, I'm a huge Tom Hamilton fan. So, uh, you know, and, and a huge Joe Russo fan. So for both those guys to, uh, to be putting their take on, on the Grateful Dead's music, I think is absolutely worthwhile uh, spending some time with. Oh, no doubt. And I would be uh, up for that. Let's, uh, let's talk to our producer, Dan, and see if we can make that happen someday. So, you know, he's, he's such a strict guy when it comes to content and everything. Yeah, that's the problem. Is I, don't, I don't know if he gives permission. So we might have to, might have to uh, ask nicely and be nice to his mother. Or take him out for tacos. That's true. Yeah, any of those things could work. But you mentioned the holidays. And um, so for the holidays, of course, everybody's got to figure out what they're going to give as gifts. And I'm always a big believer in musical gifts. And, uh, you know, besides the annual time to start signing up for uh, – your uh, Dave's pick subscription for next year and just getting it all out of the way at once and not having to worry about it, which is uh, automatic for me. There's been some great releases this year that uh, I'm looking forward to getting and or giving, uh, including they just dropped a new uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience live album uh, from a show back in Los Angeles in December, I think of 1969. And, you know, I'm just love Jimi Hendrix and I always feel like I've heard the universe of live Hendrix that's that's out there and you know to be getting a clean copy of uh, of a show from that period of time right so what coming right on the heels well not quite right on the heels but shortly after Woodstock and he's probably at his peak very much looking forward to listening to that one as am I I think that'll be a great one so excited to hear uh some, some new, I guess, new Hendrix is a, uh, is a hard way to describe it, but new to me, Hendrix. Right. Or just new versions. And, but, you know, he was such the consummate live performer that, you know, while I, I have all of his studio albums, like I do of the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, the live experience is just so much more superior, so much more expressive and freeform and, and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, if you're a Hendrix fan, go pick up the album and tell us what you think. We'll tell you what we think because, uh, I think it's going to be great. And then the other big one that's coming out that I'm very excited about is that uh, they're releasing a 50th anniversary reissue of Revolver. And uh, that's always been one of my favorite Beatles albums. And, uh, you know, I guess it just makes us getting a little bit old if we're at the point where they can be giving a 50th anniversary reissue. But uh, that's one that's on my list as well. Very cool. Excited to check that one out too. So what's happening in the wheat world right now? Well, you know, I'll tell you. Have you heard the news about Sean Diddy Combs and his big foray into uh, the marijuana world? Apparently, he's set to uh, make some serious purchases from Cresco uh, Columbia Care, a variety of, uh, it looks like, mostly retail establishments. And the price that they're quoting, $185 million, seems to be way less than what it would be if he was actually buying the companies out. So I'm assuming uh, he's buying a, a finite number of uh, licenses or facilities. And 
his 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 stated purpose is he wants to create the largest black owned marijuana business in the country. And I imagine if he pulls this off that he will have accomplished that goal. I don't know. I mean, there's a, a handful of others that are still pretty big right now. You know, you've got Burner with the whole cookies franchise. It's, you know, pretty large black owned company. You've got, um, you know, Kaliva that was Jay-Z and others that uh, were, were part of that. And I think a lot of, you know, what's called the parent company now is, is minority owned. Uh, there's a handful of others, you know, Stizzy is, is minority owned, but not, not black. It's uh, you know, a combination of Asian and uh, I believe Latino, but you know, with Diddy getting into this, he's not the first um, performer. He's certainly not the first um, hip hop mogul. You know, Wiz Khalifa's been in for a long time. Snoop's been in for a long time. So it's it's interesting. There's now sort of like this hip hop war of who's got the bigger canvas brand. What I'll say is that uh, the the headline number that was paid for these things is, is pretty absurd. And a lot of this because Cresco and Columbia Care had to divest certain assets because they were maxed out on what they could have in New York. Each one of them had their licenses, so they had to get rid of someone's assets. You know, they're they're both capped. They both reached their cap. So as part of the merger agreement, they were going to have to sell those assets anyway, much the same way that, you know, Kiraleaf was going to have to sell um, some Illinois assets. So, um, so we'll see what happens there. But I can tell you that immediately after this announcement, Diddy's out on Twitter talking about, you know, the weed industry all the time now as if he's some sort of expert in the industry now that he's, you know, written a check. I'm very curious to see how successful he is in this thing. I mean, I, I don't bet against Diddy on too many things, but uh, but we'll see. I mean, uh, your name alone in this space is not nearly enough to hold the day. And I think he's about to get his ass kicked. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, I, you know, you would know better than I when it comes to those kind of things, you know, and from my perspective, it's really simple, right? We'll we'll show up in the dispensaries and we'll find out the quality of the marijuana that he's selling. And if he's selling a good quality marijuana for a reasonable price, then in my book, he will have succeeded. If he can't quite figure out how to do that, uh, he may have some trouble down the road. But it's exciting and it's fun. And I, uh, I he's very big and he's very flamboyant. And, you know, separate and apart from the the boost that he's he's very clearly trying to give to Black-owned businesses, which is is great, it's just great for the cannabis industry as a whole to have somebody who's so widely known and and um, and, and and viewed at you know certainly as someone on the uh, the coolness scale for the hip hop crowd or whatever you know not saying he necessarily defines it but uh, I think he would be in a handful of people that that folks would look up to and say he's kind of a trendsetter in that regard and look if he if he can bring more positive press to it if he can make it uh, you know more. Uh, more acceptable in certain neighborhoods, both in minority and non-minority neighborhoods where people are still very leery and very nervous about the prospects of, of legal marijuana being sold. That's a great thing. And I applaud him for, for doing that. And look, if he makes a lot of money on the way, it's America. I just as soon see it go to him than anybody else out there who's trying to get it. So it's an interesting time. And it'll be, you know, he is, I guess, to some degree, putting his neck out on the line, right? He's, 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 he's rolling the dice here, but Maybe the play is win or lose. At least I get my 20 minutes of exposure in the marijuana industry. So it's rare that I say this, Larry, but I could not disagree more. <laughs> yeah, it's, look, first of all, I don't think anyone out there even knows who Diddy is anymore. No kids do. You know, when you say about hip hop stars, like he's, he's so past the point of being prime. You know, it's not like he's like Dre where he's still making beats and still staying relevant. Diddy's doing nothing. You know, Diddy's like long, long reinvented himself as, you know, a, a a producer, record, um, you know, a label um, owner or label, um, you know, maker, but, but he's not relevant in terms of like producing stuff in hip hop right now. Kids have no idea who he is. Second of all, when I think about a hip hop star and I think about weed, 
I don't think about Diddy. It's the last guy that comes to mind. Like, you know, Burner, Burner makes sense. You know, a guy named, his name is Burner, right? Snoop makes sense, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, even Jay-Z, I'll give, you know, credit for saying, okay, you know, Jay-Z's like certainly got Wiz Khalifa's made his whole career on weed. Diddy's an interloper, man. This is like, he's as much of a charlatan as you're going to get. This is an opportunist play where all of a sudden here comes this guy that's like, all right, I've got a bunch of coin. I want to get involved in this industry. All these other guys are doing it. Let me jump into the mix as well. But, I mean, it's like, he's not, look, this is a guy that I don't think, I mean, if he wants to say he's doing this for the uh, for, for the African-American community, maybe I'm totally wrong on this, and maybe all of you know, people in the African-American community tell me I'm, I'm totally wrong on this, but I don't think he's doing this to support the, the community. I think he's doing this as a, a, a land grab or a power grab. The guy's got plenty of money. He's a, you know, a billion-dollar uh, hip-hop mogul. I mean, it'd be like Russell Simmons getting involved in, in cannabis. Like, Russell Simmons, like, you know, he's a, he's a clothing maker at this point. You know, it has nothing to do with with setting trends in the space. So, you know, I'd much rather see like a, a lesser known young come up that's, you know, really supported Canvas all the way through. I mean, when you think about other like brands I've made it in the space, it, like guys like Woody Harrelson, he's always supported Canvas. Willie's always supported Canvas. Diddy is not supported Canvas. This is this is out of left field, like all right, I'm in New York. I want to be, you know, the, the the biggest guy in New York. I throw huge parties in the Hamptons. Everyone wants to come to my shows. Like, is is he a trendsetter? Sure. Like his white parties in the Hamptons are trendsetting. I guess back like 20 years ago. But is he doing anything now that's relevant? But no, man. I, I can't see. I can't. The, the, I don't know a single person that would go to a, a retail dispensary to shop there because Diddy's name is affiliated with weed. Not one. Okay, well, that's what I get for talking about hip hop when I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'll 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 fess up to that and and tip my hat and, and say that uh, uh, y- your opinion probably makes a lot more sense to the people out there who know these kind of things and listen to it. But I will say that you know maybe with some exceptions, uh, I still am part of the rule that you know any any. Uh, any news we can get about the cannabis industry that's not bad news, right? People getting busted, people getting killed, children jumping off buildings and dying of overdoses that don't exist unless you're Marjorie Taylor Greene or Kelly Conway. But hey, look, if, 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 if it generates any interest, even if it just puts the you know on the front page of the newspaper, so now instead of these guys fighting over bottle service at, you know, Studio Club 54 or whatever the hell it's called, you know, now they want to be see who can, you know, be the biggest big shot when it comes to weed. That puts weed on the front page. You know, it, it gets people thinking about it. It gets people accepting that it's, it's part of the trend and it's out here. And, hey, you know what? If these guys are, you know, putting the time into it, maybe there's something there. So either way, we'll see. We can come back in six months and see if Diddy's conquered the world or fallen flat on his face. Yeah. yeah. The next time headline will be Diddy loses $185 million in the weed game. And, and we'll get back on and I'll tip my hat and say, Here's the man who called it, folks. If you're not investing with him, you don't know what you're doing. And then the other uh, interesting piece of news I saw out there, quite frankly, in, involving one of your old stomping grounds, is that in Utah, they're now talking about some market curbs on Delta-8 uh, and other synthetics. Uh, but in reading the story a little bit deeper, you find that Utah was kind of a trendsetter and originally knowingly allowing the production of these types of uh of products. And I guess now maybe there's, they're getting a little pushback. And so uh, they want to rein it in a little bit, but I, I find that fascinating that of all the States out there, this, you know, even Colorado hadn't gone that far. Now, I don't know if Utah did that out of just pure ignorance and, and had no idea what they were actually doing, or if 
there was a method to their madness, but uh, I found it interesting. Yeah, it was a really cool story. And then I think the, the thing that um, wasn't touched upon enough is the rationale for why they decided to curve it back. And part of it that was mentioned very briefly in the story was that um, there's the issue about popping hot. And popping hot usually happens, you know, when you're extracting uh, D8 from hemp. So at a certain point in that process, you know, you go above that 0.03% threshold that we've discussed ad nauseum on the show. Um, but there is the, uh, the sort of that moment of, you know, does it go from being uh, illegal to being legal, then being illegal again before it becomes legal again, which is something that, you know, I think at this point we've, we've become pretty comfortable with saying that once it's, once it's legalized as legal hemp, that everything that follows stays legal. And I think we've gotten enough um, written testimony about that from, from pretty well-known law firms that, you know, a lot of companies are doing that. But Utah is now taking the step and saying, yeah, we're not so sure. So as a result of, um, of this being a synthetic or a biosynthetic or a bioidentical, um, anything that's, you know, D8 that's not derived, I think, from cannabis, but it's derived from hemp, they're saying, let's just, you know, try to put that back in the bottle. My answer is good luck. You know, if, if it's out there, uh, you know, I don't know whether or not the issue is that they're starting to see the bodegas compete with the dispensaries or the, what do they call them out there, the medical pharmacies, medical cannabis pharmacies. Uh, so, you know, I'll know more in a few weeks when I'm, when I'm in Utah and I'll do some investigation and see whether or not next to the dispensaries or 7-Elevens are selling D8. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I, I love the fact that Utah at all, you know, sells cannabis and of all the states, you, know, you kind of figured Utah would be one of the last, but they're actually relatively uh, progressive at this point. And they've certainly been very progressive on the medical front um, for specific ailments. So, you know, good to see them uh, migrating towards the, uh, the correct side here. Well, you know, and it's, it's funny because I have this recollection from the 2013 MJ Biz show of some guy standing up in the audience and raising his hand to talk and talking about how he was a former state official in Utah. I, I don't remember whether he was an elected official or a uh, administrative official. And he talked about how he would never have anything to do with marijuana, got cancer, and uh, the positive impact that marijuana had on his uh, subsequent recovery and, uh, you know, getting back to full wellness and said, you know, as I stand here today, I tell you that the red state of Utah will always be a marijuana friendly state. And at the time I, I kind of snickered at that and thought, yeah, well, you know, one person talking and I'm not saying this guy did it all, but you know, it, it, it's an interesting state of mind that, uh, you know, that, that they don't seem to be closed off to the idea that it could be beneficial. And, um, you know, there you are. Who knows? But yeah, you'll go. You heading back out there for uh, for business or for homecoming? I'm going back out to ski for a few weeks if uh, if my broken toe recovers in time to jam it back in the ski boot. But uh, a little bit of both. Go back see some old friends and you know play around the old stomping grounds. But uh, any excuse I have to get back out to Utah, I take. You know, for all the people that consider Utah to be a flyover state, uh, yeah, I completely disagree. I think Colorado and Utah are two of the best best states in the union. Don't you think it's just better, though, to tell everybody, yeah, it's just a flyover state, then you don't have long lines at the national parks? Yeah, that's true, or at the ski resorts. But I think at this point, the, uh, the cat's out of the bag. You know, I think Utah has uh, cemented itself as one of the best ski destinations in America. And uh, there's certainly no shortage of people now that are moving to Salt Lake, uh, specifically to ski, and because the quality of life out there is just so good. 
And for our listeners, today's show is being sponsored by the Utah Chamber of Commerce. So, um, <laughs> if it's not, I should I should start getting paid for being in the Utah Chamber of Commerce because I'm a, a very strong advocate for that state. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because for a couple of guys like us who love nothing better than to sit around and talk about the Grateful Dead all day, uh, we we certainly find ways to go be talking about things which are all great things, but. Uh, we've, we've, we've gotten away from this dead show for a minute, and we've got a bunch of clips today, and I want to dive back in uh, for the second clip that we're going to play from that show, uh, December 9th, 1990, from Compton Terrace. Dan? I love that song. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, there's a great cut of it, I believe, on Bear's Choice, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or I might be mistaken. I don't have it in front of me. Um, I'm sure you'll let me know. But it's it's just a fun, fun tune. It, it really lends itself well to acoustic, but it's I only ever heard it uh, electric. It tells a fun little story. You can generally follow the lyrics, you know, assuming Jerry's not slurring too much. And it, it tells a fun story. But I, I, I read something that I loved. It was... Uh, talking about the song, calling it maybe the world's oldest song about a cross-dresser. And, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, a woman who goes and dresses as a sailor to be able to go off to wherever there's a war going on. And on the battlefield with millions laying dying, she finds her true love and and brings him back and saves him. And uh, then they go off and get married. And, you know, I mean, who doesn't want their life to, to, to play out that way? But uh, it, it's just a lot of uh, great, plucking, if you will, uh, playing by Jerry to really kind of give you the feel of almost, you know, it has the feel maybe of kind of like an old English, you know, uh, pub song or something. And uh, it's always been one of my favorites. Yeah, mine as well. And I always look at it as um, not so much a, a cross-dressing song, but as one of the world's great love songs and one of the world's great proposals. You know, if you think the entire story leads up to the final lines, which is uh, this couple, they got married, so why not you and me? It's ultimately the, the narrator who's telling the story is asking someone to marry them and does it through the, uh, the guise of, you know, look, if this true love is so strong that this, uh, this girl is willing to go to the battlefield and jump on a ship and fight the war and do everything else to actually get to her love, rescue him, heal his wounds, and then ultimately they get married. You know, if that's true love, and if that's true love, then this must be true love. And if they got married, why not us? And I, I always thought it's just one of the, the great proposals that you could ever imagine of like, let me tell you a story before I drop any and, and, and ask you to marry me. So, you know, a really, really great song. And uh, I've always loved the story that's behind it and really, really enjoyed the, the idea of this slight, small, slender person, you know, jumping on board a warship and, you know, everyone looking at it going, well, wait a second, is this a girl? So, you know, like you're, you're too small to be a, to be a cabin boy or to, you know, so uh, it, it it works out really, really well. Um, just a terrific tune.
It is. And uh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with what you said. And, you know, I wish you would have told me all of that the night before I proposed to my wife, because boy, that would have been a great way to go and uh, missed that opportunity a few years ago, but that's okay. Um, all goes forward and we will be enjoying uh, J-Rad together as a true Grateful Dead family. Let's play another clip though here because uh, the song keeps moving along and uh, this next clip is uh, one of the many, many, many Dylan covers that they played, but always one of my favorites because all the boys in the band get to participate. Go ahead, Dan. Anytime it's like uh, the wait, right? Where each one of them get to take a verse, but here they get saved because there's five verses, and typically there's only four of them at any one time that can sing. But because both uh, Vince and uh, Bruce Hornsby were playing this show, they were able to each pick up a verse. And I, you know, Jerry's verse at the beginning is great. Uh, Bobby's really sings it well. They all do, but you know, back at that time, at least we were getting, we would get uh, Box of Rain we would get uh, Tom Thumbs Blues and we'd get Maggie's Farm. If you wanted to hear Phil singing and uh, he takes a verse and he just goes with it and it's fun. But one of the things that I, I guess I didn't really know very much. I, I, I remember hearing stories about Bob Dylan at the 65 Newport Folk Festival and, and going electric and everybody booed him and, you know, couldn't believe that he sold out by going electric. What I didn't know was that Maggie's Farm uh, was basically the song he was playing at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I can imagine the different sound it would have acoustic versus electric and the Newport Folk Festival, I guess, not ever having been there myself, but having read the stories was pretty much a traditionally an acoustic type of event. And here was Bob going electric. But what's even more uh, interesting is that uh, then people start to dig deep because there's always two sides to the story. And they're like, nah, it wasn't that he had gone electric. It was that the microphone didn't work very well. So nobody could understand what he was singing. And so the crowd was upset about that. And, uh, and, and that's what the problem was. And somebody else came out and said, no, they were booing him because he only played a 15 or 20 minute set and everybody else was playing 45 minutes. So it just goes to show that, you know, the best Dylan stories are probably left just a little bit murky rather than trying to get to the bottom of it. But it's at least good to know that uh, this was the tune that Dylan chose to go electric on because it, it's a great song. Yeah, I always loved Maggie's Farm. I always loved it during this era. And again, as you said, much like The Weight was the only other song where it was multiple verses. They all took their turn on the verses. And they always had a lot of fun with uh, the changing of the lyrics. You know, sometimes it would be she's 68 but says she's 54. Other times it would be. You know, you never knew what, what age um, Maggie's ma was going to be. But we, we at least you knew she was the brains behind Pa. 
So yeah, no, it was, a, it was a really good one, and I think in 1990, you know, Maggie's Farm and uh, The Way were both being played. So you know, you, you had the fill on that, and this is right after uh, Brent had passed, so you no longer had Give Me Some Lovin'. So yeah, you were you were missing um, missing Phil's ability to jump in there on a lot of songs. And it wasn't until '92 that all of a sudden he started popping in a bunch of new tunes of his own, um, you know, like Broken Arrow, and then Childhood Childhood's End, and uh, Who the Shoe Fits, and all the rest of the ones that he started playing right towards the end. Uh, which, you know, since is, is, he's shelved all of those, you know, for the most part, um, you know, with Phil and friends. So there's just a very brief period of, of Phil having a bunch of tunes to sing with the Grateful Dead. Uh, but Maggie's Farm is, you know, a classic Dylan and, and certainly, you know, one that um, that I was always happy to hear. And I think it's interesting, Larry, as I look through your song selection, what you wanted to play today, outside of Hell in a Bucket, you picked cover after cover after cover after cover. So very cool. You picked a Bruce Hornsby tune. Uh, very cool. You picked a Bob Dylan tune, a traditional song in Jackaro. So as we go through it, you know, it's a lot of tunes, that, you know, again, prove that the Grateful Dead in many ways were absolutely the greatest cover band in the world. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and you know, to the point where I would just uh, almost naturally adopt them as Grateful Dead tunes and, you know, have to remind myself when I was talking with other people, I remember having a conversation once with somebody I was wearing a, uh, the, the old smokestack lightning shirt that uh, Phil with showing Phil is ready kilowatt and uh, uh, it was a great t-shirt. And I was wearing it one day and some guy who I knew was a, a music guy came up to me and said, Oh, smokestack lightning. He goes, that's a great tune. I go, yeah, it's one of my favorite grateful dead songs. He's like, son, that is not a grateful dead song. Don't make that mistake. You know? And I guess I felt like that kid who I chastised in, in Boulder, but you know, you sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. And, uh, you know, you just kind of have to be careful when you, when you're, when you're shooting your mouth off. Oh, I want to say Howlin' Wolf. Is that right? Yes. 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 So yeah, it's, uh, you know, look, it's, it's, it's just fun to, to hear all of this stuff. And, uh, it, it, I think we've talked about, at least in my case and, you know, how it exposed me to so many other artists that I never would have, I might've, but, you know, probably wouldn't have as readily drifted to, and certainly not gone as deep into their catalogs as I did. Cause I'm like, well, geez, if the dead are going to cover one of their songs, you know, who are these guys, what's the rest of the stuff they play? And, you know, then you get to know a lot of bands. So that's a great thing. Um, and just rolling with the music here, cause this next one is certainly one of my favorites. And we're talking about covers, you know, this was this brief period of time when Hornsby was playing with them. Uh, with the with the full baby or the full grand piano, I guess not even a baby grand, a full grand, and uh, you know, kind of playing while Vince got his legs underneath him and and all of that, and uh, the boys were kind enough to work uh, a Hornsby tune in and uh, Valley Road. I, I knew the song and I had uh, heard that they had been playing it, but I had never heard it live. And then uh, here we go. Oh, 
came out of the show singing that song all night to just, uh, just such a great sound to it. Um, and I love, uh, they were interviewing Bruce Hornsby, uh, I guess right before the, uh, 2015 shows at Soldier Field. And, uh, he was talking about how, how at first, how, you know, flattering it was that, uh, the dead, a band that he had been listening to his whole, you know, musical life was willing to play his tune. And, you know, Jerry took the time to learn the song and they, all, all the guys did. And they, they even were able to sing background vocals on it and all of that. But then he said, you know, the problem was that was a period of time when Jerry was on again, off again. And when Jerry was off again and he wasn't practicing, he'd get lazy and we'd play the song and Jerry would miss all the chord changes and he'd miss all the everything and the tune would just sound terrible. So I figured I could either, you know, keep trying to get him to do it right or just drop the tune. So eventually, I, you know, I just gave up trying to get him to do it. So I guess you can only go so far if uh, uh, if Jerry's not 100% on your side with it. Yeah, I can say, that, you know, one of the things I love about that tune is how into it Jerry was towards the end uh, on the walk-ons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really funny to me that that was the song that Hornsby chose to play of his own catalog with the Grateful Dead. I mean, it's a great, like, sort of honky-tonk, like, bar room, you know, blues song. Um, but it wasn't a song that Garcia played on, on his album. You know, you would have thought that, like, Across the River would have been, you know, the song that would play because it's one he was probably much more familiar with, or Cruise Control or some of the other ones that, um, that you know, Garcia played with Hornsby um, on, on the studio. But uh, but of all the ones they could pick, you know, across excuse me, um, uh, Valley Road was such a great choice because it's so perfectly suited to uh, Garcia's guitar playing. It was, and and I like what you said about it, kind of having a honky tonk sound because it does, and you can be, in a in a rather large environment like Compton Terrace, and when when you start hearing that sound, it makes you feel like you're in a, you know, in a, in a small little joint somewhere listening to the boys really, you know, heated up and everything, and. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I was glad that they played it. It was a great experience to get to see Bruce Hornsby play with them for a while. I love reading all the comments, you know, after the show, and everybody talks about Hornsby. Oh, I was walking around backstage, and Hornsby wanted to throw a football with somebody, so I, I threw a football with him for a little while. Or, oh, the, what, the rule was if Hornsby was there, they had to have a basketball net set up backstage so Hornsby could shoot baskets in case Bill Walton showed up or something. And I never knew how true any of them were, but I just love the idea, first of all, as a sports fan, and second of all, that, you know, that that's what he would do. Well, the guys all might be in their little room smoking or drinking or sleeping or whatever. Hornsby was active and he was out doing stuff. And uh, I've always been a big Bruce Hornsby fan. And uh, I thought that was a good, a good matchup when he played with them for a while. Yeah, for sure. And then the crazy part of Valley Road is they only played it, I think like five or six times, you know, maybe 10. I think they started playing it um, in the October, 1990 Europe run. And then the last time they played it, I actually got to see the final one on December 30th, 1990 at the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, and that was a, a first set closer, which I think is kind of the slot they put it in. And then they shelved it. And again, like Hornsby continued to play with the Grateful Dead for on and off again for the next two years. You know, like primarily almost all of 1991, he was out there on the road with the boys and just wasn't wasn't playing Valley Road anymore, which, you know, I, I didn't really understand because it was such a, a great um, addition to the repertoire. Yeah, but look, you know, as he says, if, if Jerry's not willing to practice it and, you know, to the point where he's not playing it right, then... You know, you're, you might be fighting a losing battle there if you're the the, the seventh man in the band as the uh, as the you know temporary uh, piano player. But look, you know that's okay because right, some of the best Grateful Dead songs that ever played were only played a handful of times, and it's like everything else. Either you made it to one of those shows or you didn't, and if you didn't, you can still hear it. But if you did, it was it was a big moment, and you were really happy that you made it. Yeah, and I think the final number was six. I think, I think they they played it from October twenty second to uh, December thirtieth. So it's you know, two months span wow. of, uh, of playing Valley Road. So really cool that you were able to find a version that, uh, that you were at and agreed. When, when I first heard it, you know, 
I, I came out uh, singing that tune as well and trying to figure out which album was on because, you know, I was a Hornsby fan from, you know, kind of the way it is era, like 1986 is when I first started listening to Hornsby. Uh, and then when he joined the band, you know, the, to me, that was the greatest thing in the world because it was, you know, a, a musician I already loved. I'm like, it would, it would be like, you know, Trey joining the Grateful Dead. Um, but having Hornsby jump in there, I couldn't have thought of a, a better person to, uh, to you know, fill that slot, especially as, as Vince was trying to um, to feel his way through joining that band. It was a, a great transitional you know period there. But uh, I, the one regret I have is there wasn't more Hornsby shows with the Grateful Dead. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, he, he, he seemed to be such a natural with them, but it's kind of like Brantford, you know? You, you, you could imagine Brantford playing with them forever because he fit in so seamlessly and, and added such a depth and, and other layers of music that, that, that weren't there before, not just from his instrument, but bringing it out of the other guys as well. But on the other hand, you know, that's what makes a band a band, right? You've got your guys and every now and then people join in with you, but otherwise it's, it's you and your mates doing your thing. And, uh, you know, for the most part, Jerry and the boys got along just fine on their own. And, uh, when they got that, uh, additional, uh, guest appearance by somebody, it just, uh, kicked it up a little bit further and made it a little more fun. I know you've got him, uh, jump off in a minute, Rob, and, and we don't have too much more time today anyway, just about another 15 minutes, I would say. But one of the things that uh, I wanted to talk about today, and maybe we can kick over for next time, is just getting down to talking about, you know, get away from the uh, educational, the uh, newsworthiness, all of that, and, and just talk cannabis for a while. Strains, formats, flower, vapes, edibles, all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Either what you what you yourself like, what you've been hearing about from others, what you see is, you know, on the business side being sold, and uh, and really, you know, where does the future of cannabis go with all of this? Um, I, there's no uh, there's no uh, early warning for me because reader alerts for me because I just am a flower guy, so um, I'm happy to talk about flower all day long. But I know there's a lot of other stuff out there uh, that a lot of people really swear by, and um, you know, just kind of curious to get your thoughts on some of that too. Yeah, I'd love to have a full episode where we're discussing nothing but flour, you know, and I know you posed to me before the, uh, the show whether or not I thought, you know, flour has longevity to, to remain kind of the, the primary uh, means of consumption in the space. And, and I certainly do. I mean, I'd, I'd love to get into it more. And I don't think anything, you know, commands the uh, the attention of the industry the way the flour does and has and I think always will. Um and I think for a long time, you know, I kept hearing people, especially people that are new to the industry, going, oh, no, all these new form factors are going to take over. And it's all going to be about edibles. It's all going to be about drinks. And it's going to be commoditized like anything else. And my answer at the time was, I, I don't think so. I mean, when you think about, like, just uh, how unique some of the terpene profiles and flavonoid profiles are of, of flour, I don't see how, you know, it, it takes over. Any, any more than I think that, you know, you could homogenize wine and say, let's let's make you know, put grapes in a product that's an edibles product. You know, I think people want to taste their Cabernets and taste their, uh, their, their um, you know, uh, Pinots and whatever other varietals, the one that, you know, you, you gravitate towards. So I think having a flower, I'd love to do it in conjunction with a breeder because there's certainly a lot of breeders out there that we could get on the show that could discuss, you know, what's happening and how they approach the, uh, the space and how they keep things popping and new and, and what their new drops are going to be. But, uh, but I think that's a, a great topic for discussion because, Again, sometimes we get we get bogged down on the business side of this industry, and we forget that primarily this industry is about you know about the cultivators and about the extraction artists and some of the other people. And once in a while, we have them on as guests, but most of the stories we talk about really are related to the um, to to the business side of the industry instead of the 
the, the foundation of the industry itself. True. And, and of course, uh, you know, take it just one more level down. It's all about, you know, the consumer, the stoner, the pothead, the guy who, uh, the woman who loves their stuff and just uh, doesn't know where else to get it. And uh, now they have options and uh, it, it's a great thing. So I will look forward to talking about that. We're going to let Rob go because he's got to jump off. We'll talk to you next week, Rob. Yeah, sounds great. Look forward to it, guys. And can't wait to, uh, to discuss more weed and uh, more Grateful Dead. Absolutely. Thank you very much, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. So continuing on here for a few more minutes, that is a topic that we're going to get into. It, it's uh, it's always interesting. I think part of it is generational. Part of it is certainly I see people my age who were always big fans of flour and uh, now start to uh, delve back into it a little bit and have decided that flour is not really the way to go for them anymore. And overwhelmingly it's, it's, it's edibles, maybe some vapes too, but everybody loves the edibles, the three milligram, four milligram edibles. If it works for them, that's great. Nothing has the instant impact of flour though. Well, maybe if you're dabbing uh, some extract, it does, but that intake method uh, is for me, you know, traditional, national, uh, natural and uh, extremely effective. So uh, we will talk about that. And, and Rob's a good person to talk about it with. Uh, he has a lot of experience, uh, both uh, having uh, used it himself and uh, also now working in conjunction with uh, entities that are manufacturing and uh, and selling. So uh, that'll be a fun topic to talk about. Um, turning back to our uh, our concert for the day from uh, Compton Terrace, uh, the next tune uh, I would just want to spin here really fast is uh, Spoonful. And we were just talking about Howlin' Wolf and uh, uh, the unique sounds that... Uh, uh, you get with some of these tunes that the dead would cover and uh, spoonful uh, was a tune that was always fun uh, most often they would play it out of trucking and uh, uh, Bobby really was the guy who uh, uh, picked it up and ran with it um, and so here's a clip from uh, spoonful from December 9th 1990 it could have been a spoonful of coffee it could have been a spoonful of tea just a little spoon of your precious love Good enough for me A little light about it A little fire's about it Even dying's about it Spoonful, it's uh, it's a song that's just written by legends, recorded by legends. R R Willie Dixon wrote the tune, and Howlin' Wolf was the first one to record it in 1960. And uh, it, it was immediately, uh, became one of Dixon's best-known tunes, uh, as many, many others, including Etta James, uh, Harvey Fuqua, and, and probably uh, most notably for uh, people of my generation, Cream, uh, covered the tune. And all uh, had very distinctive versions of it that uh, that were great. Uh, Dixon actually wrote a number of these tunes for Helen Wolf. Dixon wrote Wang Dang Doodle, which Helen Wolf recorded as well as Backdoor Man. And Wolf himself uh, wrote and recorded Smokestack Lightning. And they all have the same kind of 
you know, standard one chord blues structure that, you know, is, is immediately recognizable for anybody who's wandered into a Chicago blues club uh, and sat down and listened to the music for a few minutes. And uh, it's, it's just so wonderful the way that that sound was taken and incorporated by the dead uh, into their own, uh, into their own, their own manner of playing and uh, uh, their own interpretations of it. And, and anytime I would hear it, it was always really good. One of the, Another notable performance was a show that both Rob and I were at in uh, the spring of 92 in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl. And on the third night when they had uh, Steve Miller out playing the whole second set or big chunk of the second set with them, maybe just after drums through the end, uh, they played Spoonful with with Steve out there too. And uh, that's a great one to go back and listen to uh, if, if you really want to get a full feel for this song. Um, but we always enjoyed it. Didn't hear it nearly enough because it was... Uh, uh, such a fun song, but you know, when Bobby says it's time to play it, that's when it was time to play it, and that's what we would do. Otherwise, uh, you know, in the cannabis world, uh, we're still waiting for uh, President Biden's uh, appointed uh, researchers to go start doing their research and come back and tell us what we all have always known about marijuana for a long, long time, even though none of us are government scientists or anything like that. And uh, that will really get the ball moving forward on a lot of fronts when we can establish both the medical efficacy and the relative safety of marijuana uh, when compared to other intoxicants that humans and adults choose to use uh, when they're looking to uh, uh, get a little clarity of mind, if you will, or uh, maybe a little fun in the brain. But um, uh, whatever it might be, uh, it's just good to see cannabis move forward. Uh, I understand Rob's very uh, emphatic denial of Diddy, and I'm in no position to counter it. Um, but like I say, the, the, the more, the more uh, publicity we can get for this industry, the more publicity we can get for this product. It's a product that everybody knows about. You know, if anybody sees a marijuana leaf, they know what it is. It's fully ingrained in our society at every level. And yet we still just kind of treat it with this, you know, no, no see, no hear, no say, uh, you know, kind of model. And we're, we're breaking through that, all of us. And uh, the people who go to the dispensaries and buy the products and uh, the people who grow the products and the people who manufacture the products and sell the products and who put on the conferences so we can all go. This is all, every time we do this, we're, we're building up this product and we're, we're normalizing this industry. And it will not be long before uh, we get to a point where people look back and kind of laugh on this much the way we all kind of look back and laugh at prohibition. And uh, only this one is much more, uh, this is worse than prohibition, much longer, has ruined more lives and cost us much, much, much more money in lost tax revenue that uh, could have certainly been helping uh, this country and the states in it for any one of a, uh, for a number of years. And, and now we're seeing it in, in states that have legalized it and what they're able to do. So um, that's enough for me on my soapbox about marijuana today. Uh, thank you all for listening. This is a lot of fun. It was great to come back uh, after Thanksgiving and dive into this. I'm excited to see J-Rad, even though when you hear this, I will have already seen them. And then the next time you hear us, It'll be a week later, but I'll give my rundown of the shows and, uh, uh, and you know, how they're playing, which I'm sure will be fantastic. They're always a lot of fun. And my advice to anyone is if they're in town, go see them and see them as often as you can. Um, as we head out today, we're going to play one final tune uh, from our show from Compton Terrace in uh, December of 1990. Yet again, one more cover tune, Good Lovin', uh, which was re recorded by a uh, gentleman, originally recorded by a guy named Lemmy B. Good, which was the stage name of singer Lemmy Snell in March of 65. 
Uh, it was then recorded uh, with different lyrics by R&B artists, the Olympics, and produced by Jerry Rigovi, and that reached number 81 on the Bill, Billboard Pop Singles Charts. However, uh, the tale was told that Rascal, one of the members of the Rascals, Felix Cavallari, heard the Olympics re recording on a New York City radio station, and then the Rascals went ahead and added to their concert repertoire uh, using the same lyrics and, and basically the same arrangement. Um, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame calls it one of the 500 uh, songs that shaped rock and roll. Uh, anyone who hears the beginning of it instantly knows what it is. Uh, the Grateful Dead played it, but not nearly enough. And uh, when they did, as my good buddy Alex said, everyone goes home with a smile on their face. So to everyone, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Please go home with a smile on your face and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed, and I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.